And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we are in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. Take a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Anytime we sin, whether it's a known sin or unknown sin, whether it's a sin of intention or unintention, uh, we immediately violate the righteousness of God. And since God cannot have fellowship with the creature that it does not measure up to his perfect righteousness, we need to confess it. The instant we confess it, we are forgiven so that we are restored to fellowship and recover the filling of the Spirit for teaching and learning and advancing in the spiritual life. So we always take a minute, few minutes for a few moments for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship and ready to focus and concentrate on God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have your word to uh, teach us, to tell us how you think, and to inform us of all that you have done in our so great salvation. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the Gospel of John this morning and investigating all the things that took place during the trials, the arrest, the trials, and the crucifixion of our Lord, where the sins of the world were poured out upon him where he who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us, that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that we might be impressed with the extent of your grace and how you worked everything together to take care of every need, every problem, every difficulty in our lives, that your grace is all-sufficient and that you are all-powerful. Father, we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for the few of you who weren't here earlier or on Wednesday... Uh, today, afterward, we are taking off and we're going to be headed eventually to a part of the world that it, most of us never heard of, much less have visited, Kazakhstan, the former Soviet Republic, located north, roughly north of uh, India and uh, northwest of China. And where we are going in Kazakhstan is to Almaty, former capital of the, that republic. It's in the lower southeast corner there about 150 miles or so from China, which is the, the country to the, uh, to the right or to the uh, east of Kazakhstan. And uh, I'll be teaching pastors there. There's about 50 or 60 pastors that are going to be there uh, for about three weeks of uh, intensive training. 
and uh, we will get there. We, we're leaving today, but uh, we're going to have a little vacation on the way over, so we won't get there until next Sunday. I think we arrive by the time I finally hit the rack that morning. It'll be about 4 o'clock in the morning, and then I have to teach at 8, so that will be an exciting, exciting day. More opportunities. So on the weather there, somebody's asking about the weather. It should be, I don't know, about like it is here normally during this time of year. Temperatures about 60 at night, maybe uh, mid to upper 80s during the day. Uh, we have had an unusually cool summer. I kind of like that. It's not like Texas. Every time I talk to somebody back in Houston, they're talking about, well, it was 102 today. It was 101 yesterday, and it sort of uh, reminds me about the Texan who prayed that uh, was praying for rain, not not so much for me, but for my uh, seven-year-old because he's never seen it. <laughs> so uh, you always know that you're in Texas when you you no longer associate bridges with rivers or water. <laughs> they have something called low water crossings out central Texas and west Texas, and you go through a little dip and you see this tall measuring like a yardstick to the right of the uh, to the right of this this little dip in the road and it has lines on it you know every foot is marked off and you wonder what in the world is that and then you have a flash flood and you realize that the water actually goes over the top of that stick about once every now and then you know you're in Texas when you can say 110 degrees without fainting when you can make instant sun tea Now, you know you're, you're in Texas. See, see, down there you're just used to hot weather. You learn that a seatbelt makes a pretty good branding iron. <laughs> now, I remember one, the last year, the summer I graduated from Dallas Seminary, which was the summer of 80, I remember when it got up to 117 in Dallas, which was a record. I remember one night driving about 11.30 at night because the air conditioner had broken in the house and... So I was out in the car driving around to cool off and going by a bank, and it said 11.30, and then the temperature was 98. So, you know, in Texas, when the temperature drops below 95, you just feel chilly and it's time to get out the winter wardrobe. You also, in te- you know you're in Texas when you discover that it only takes two fingers to drive your car. And, and you always know you're in Texas when hot water comes out of both taps. <laughs> and your biggest bicycle wreck fear is that what if I get knocked out and end up lying on the pavement and cooked to death? <laughs> so, well, let's open our Bibles to the 18th chapter of John, and we're going to continue our study this morning on the, uh, the uh, trials of our Lord. The trials of our Lord. Now, one of the things that confuses people when they start looking at the Gospels and sometimes trying to compare the different accounts, and there appears to be contradictions. And the reason it appears to be contradictions is because the authors don't sit down and write from a Western European, Latin-influenced concept of history. The writers are not writing history per se or biography like we know it. They are writing theological 
uh, interpretation of the event. So each writer comes at the information from a different perspective, and they don't tell us everything there is to, to inform us about, everything there, that happened. There were six trials of Christ, and the first three were before the Jews, and they were religious in nature. The second three were before the Roman authorities and were criminal in nature. We saw last time that John tells us about the very first trial, which is more in the order of an arraignment hearing, which is before the high priest Annas. And we saw at that time that Annas was still called the high priest, even though functionally he had been removed from the office in 16 A.D. because uh, by Quirinius. And the reason was because at the time there was no procurator in Judea, so he seized upon the opportunity to execute a criminal. And because he had so much power, uh, they kicked him out of office, but according to the Mosaic Law... If you're an Aaronic priest in the Aaronic line, you're high priest for life, so the Jews still called him high priest. Well, he was the major power broker of the time. The, we would call him the, sort of the godfather of the Jewish criminal system. And he operated all of the concessions in the temple and selling in, of the uh, sacrificial animals. He is the one who controlled the uh, money exchange raid, and he ripped off all the travelers. So he made an enormous amount of money off of the religious system in Israel. In fact, all that whole area outside the temple where they sold the animals, they had the money changers, was called the Bazaar of Annas. And so Jesus is brought first before him, and then he's taken in the same house, which is the dwelling place of the high priest, across the courtyard to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, C-A-I-A-P-H, A.S., who is the acting high priest at that time. Caiaphas was high priest from about 25 to 36 A.D., during roughly the same time that Pontius Pilate was, was, um, was the governor there. And then he, they are taken before the San, Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. After that, he is then taken, after the Sanhedrin finds him guilty of blasphemy, which is a religious charge, which under Mosaic law was punishable by capital punishment, and they could not execute capital punishment because of their position under the authority of Rome. They have to get, that has to be done by the Roman authority, who is Pontius Pilate. So they take him first to Pilate. Pilate finds no guilt, no reason for a trial, basically doesn't see any reason to uh, have a trial, so he dismiss, rather than dismissing him, he sends him over to Herod Agrippa, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee in, in Jerusalem for the Passover season. Uh, Herod then sends him back to Pilate. Now, we won't get into all of this this time. We're going to uh, get about halfway through this and then wrap up when I get back from Kazakhstan. Of course, in between, you're going to be treated to a study of Hebrews, uh, so you don't want to miss any class. Dan's going to be covering that. He, um, I think he's going to do a great job. He's been uh, working diligently at it. For He doesn't know it, but the Lord's been preparing him for the last year through uh, various assignments he's had 
have all seemed to focus, at least by the papers he sends me to critique, they've all seemed to focus on problem passages in Hebrews. Then he took an exegesis in Hebrews course this last spring, and then uh, we've been working together in organizing his material and working through some of the things this summer, and he's had a couple of research papers due in one of his research courses at seminary this summer on problem passages in Hebrews. So he is well prepared and he will cover Hebrews in a bit of a summary fashion during the next 13 Bible classes. So he will take off from one class where he ended the class before. That means you just don't want to miss because uh, that, that means he'll be covering approximately a chapter a class. And if you miss a chapter, well, you'll just be lost. So you don't want to miss at all. Now, Last time we looked in John 18, we saw the arrest of Jesus, and then he's brought uh, before Annas. And at verse uh, 24, Annas, after interviewing him, sent him bound. He is still bound, just as a sacrificial lamb was tied or bound before it was sacrificed. He is still bound, has his hands tied, and he is taken to Caiaphas the high priest. That's listed in um, verse 24. But when we begin, verse uh, 28, 24 through 27, shifts back to Peter's denial. Then verse 28, they reads, They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas. So we're not told in John what happens in this second trial before Caiaphas. So let's get a little glimpse as to what takes place by turning to the parallel passages in Mark. Mark chapter 14, you slip your bulletin in there to John 18. We will return before the morning is over with. Go back to Mark chapter 14. Now, one of the things that we need to note and observe as we go through this is that both systems of law break down in this religious trial. Both systems of law. The Jews had a very precise and profound system of law developed, first of all, in the Mosaic Law, and then secondarily, it was further developed and enhanced through the oral tradition of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees so that they had a very good, objective system of law. The whole thing breaks down as soon as people get involved in uh, running law on the basis of religion. Now, remember, religion is man trying to gain God's approval through man's efforts. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. There is a vast difference between Christian, biblical Christianity. I always have to express it that way because there's all kinds of people out there calling themselves Christians that are not biblical. Biblical Christianity is based on grace. It is based upon God doing all the work and man accepting it. Biblical Christianity is not based on arrogance. Legalistic Christianity is always based on arrogance, and whenever you have any kind of religion, whether it is Hinduism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, or legalistic forms of Christianity operating on arrogance, then it always has damaging consequences for political institutions. One of the greatest examples of this occurs in the history of the United States. So we'll stop a minute, take a little look at this example, and this shows you why doctrine matters. I had a great problem 
in Western culture at the beginning of the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century called slavery. Now you have two different cultures that are very similar who are both involved in the slave trade. On the one hand, you have the United States, and on the other hand, you have the um, British Empire. How they handled slavery and the consequences of how they handled slavery is determined exclusively, and you'll never hear this in any history class, is determined exclusively by how they understand salvation and the gospel of grace. What happens is this. In the United States, we'll draw out a timeline here. Here we have 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And here's 1800. Now, if you read the accounts in uh, historical, uh, uh, read the accounts of, of that time, by 1800, the nation had slipped into a level of complacency and were, were basically shifting towards a negative view of Christianity. But something occurred in 1800 among some college campuses. It, it was spearheaded by some things that happened at, down at Yale and a few other of the old line schools that were still focused on doctrine. You know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton were all founded to train men for the gospel ministry. At the time of their founding, they were squared away biblically. Of course, they're not now. But what happens at this time is what I think is one of the few times when you have uh, something called re- revival, where it seems like God is moving in a unique way in history and a lot of people are getting saved. Now, there's two t- t- this revival is called the Second Great Awakening. The first Great Awakening occurred in the 1740s under the ministry of uh, Jonathan Edwards up in Northampton, Mass., and uh, George Whitfield and several others. But the Second Great Awakening had two stages. I think the eastern branch that occurred along the eastern seaboard had some positive benefits to it. But much of what happened in the Second Great Awakening was awful and set the, the, the foundation for almost every social problem that has come down the pike in American history since. Now, what happens is that during the Second Great Awakening, you had the rise of a man by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Now, Finney is saved. I'm not sure if he was or not, but we'll just assume for the sake of argument that he was. Sometime in the 18-teens, coming out of the Second Great Awakening, and he becomes an evangelist. Now, there are many, if some of you may come out of a Pentecostal charismatic background, Finney is still widely read as a theologian by many, many in, in that background. Now, but most people don't have a clue as to Finney's theology. Now, you have to understand his theology to understand what happens in American history. Finney believes that Every person is born as Adam was created. In other words, he does not believe in original sin. He does not believe in total depravity. He does not believe that you are born a sinner, but he believes that man is basically born in the same state of perfection that Adam was created in. Each person chooses to sin, and therefore... Because you're born in that state of perfection, 
he believes that each person is perfectible. That you are perfectible. Third, he does not believe, and this ought to teach you something about how to critique what people say theologically. What does he think about the atonement? He does not believe that Christ's work on the cross was substitutionary. He believed that Christ's death on the cross was a moral example. See, if man is not an inherent sinner, then he doesn't need to have a shift in his righteousness taking place. See, the problem is man is inherently has negative righteousness, and so Christ's perfect righteousness has to be imputed to man in order to save him. But if man is not born with Adam's original sin and is not born condemned under sin, then you don't need a perfect solution like that, and man can perfect himself. So you have a moral example view of the atonement. In terms of prophecy, uh, Finney was a post-millennialist. That means that he believed that Jesus would not return until after post, after the millennium. So that the millennium is going to come in because the church is going to gradually and increasingly have an influence on all of society and perfect society. So just as man is perfectible, perfectible, society is perfectible. Now, if society is perfectible, what is going to perfect society? It is going to be the church. So that means that what you have to do is identify the great social evils and then start. Then the church needs to go on a crusade and start attacking them. Now, what happened at the beginning of the 19th century, coming out of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, you identified about five major social problems. The top of the list was slavery. Second was temperance. The evils of alcohol. The third problem had to do with uh, women's suffrage. Because at that time, and under the original Constitution of the United States, the only people who were allowed to vote were people who had a vested interest in legislation. Landowners, and it was men were allowed to vote, not because it was an anti-woman thing, that's just the misinterpretation of the modern feminist, but because the man was the head of the family. And so it was the family vote, not just the individual vote. And so the man, the man as the head of the home was given the vote. The man was the one who owned the property. And that was, uh, he had vested interest in the legislation. People who don't own land, people who don't have vested interest, they don't care whether you have legislation that increases taxation or not. It really doesn't affect them. If you're on welfare, you're in poverty, then you know the government's paying your bills, so why should you care whether taxes are increased or not or what the government programs are? And so that was the original view, but, but you have the influence of democratic ideals coming in from a shift in education. In the 18th century, the ideal was the Roman Republic, but by the early 19th century, the ideal in American education shifted from the Roman Republic to Greek democracy and Athenian democracy, and so you had those factors entering in as well. You have slavery, temperance, suffrage, you have, and, and I'm not saying that these aren't problems. It's how they handle the problem that makes all the difference. You had the problem of you had the problem you had labor problems. 
So these were the top four. And if you look at that historically, they just kind of ticked them off, boom, 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 down the line up into the uh, middle of the 19th century. I mean, up into the middle of the 20th century. Now, this is the framework. Now, Finney goes down to Ohio and he founds a seminary and college called Oberlin College and Seminary, which is the ideological seedbed for abolitionism. Now, you have to remember that the ideological motivation for abolitionism in the United States was founded upon this system of thinking. It merged, especially in New England, with, from the unbeliever side, with the transcendentalists like Thoreau and Emerson, and, and they, too, they were utopians. So they too believed that man was perfectible and society was perfectible, and they too did not believe that man was inherently sinful or depraved. Now what happened? Because you're operating on arrogance, see, anybody who believes that man is perfectible and that, that the role of the church is to perfect society is arrogant. Because you're operating from a root mental attitude sin of arrogance, you are dooming any fruit to be rotten fruit. And so what happens is the arrogance, the transcendentalists entered, you know, politics always makes strange bedfellows. The transcendentalists and the pseudo evangelicals of the Finneyite concept, which was the dominant view of the time, uh, merge together, and they go on a crusader, operating on crusader arrogance. They're targeting these social ills in order to uh, change society. And whenever you're operating on arrogance, you're operating on self-absorption, which always displays itself in, uh, in, in hypersensitivity, and on self-deception. In other words, you can't understand reality correctly because you're operating on subjectivism rather than an objective view of the law. Now, arrogance always has one effect, whether it happens in your marriage or whether it happens in your job or career or whether it happens in politics. Arrogance always has one result. It always polarizes people. As soon as somebody starts operating on self-absorption and their, their will, they want their will to dominate and control, there's always going to be somebody to react to it. And what happened is that the abolitionists polarized the nation into two camps because as soon as they started operating on their abolitionist concept, they created a reaction among what was called the hot spurs in the South and they're operating on arrogance as well. And so you create this polarization, and the result is war, and the problem is never solved, and America still has a major race problem. And if you read the literature of the time, what you realize is that there's not really a concern for the individual black slave as a person as much as there's a concern to do away with the evil, and that's demonstrated by the fact that as soon as the, the war was over with and the slaves were free, it's let's move on to the next problem, which is temperance. 
Most people don't realize it, but by the mid-1880s, alcohol was outlawed in Kansas and in Dodge City and the old cow towns. You couldn't buy any alcohol anywhere. They were all operating on, uh, uh, if you wanted it, you had to go build a still. Uh, There's no concern for the individual. Now, contrast that to what happened in England. In England, two of the major players in the abolitionist, abolitionist movement in England were a man by the name of Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce. Granville Sharp is usually well known in evangelical circles because he was uh, uh, also a Greek scholar and came up with a couple of grammar rules that are still uh, used a lot in the study of Greek. Now, these guys are evangelicals. What do they believe about man? Man is totally depraved. They believe that every human being is born a sinner and he has imputed the Adam's original sin and therefore lacks righteousness and needs the perfect solution of substitutionary atonement. They believe in substitutionary atonement of Christ. They, therefore, don't believe man is perfectible. Furthermore, eschatologically, they are not post-millennial. They were premillennial, and they did not believe society was perfectible. In other words, these guys were grace-oriented. That's the opposite of arrogance. If arrogance polarizes, grace doesn't. What happened in England? You look at the result of how theology plays itself out. Because they weren't motivated by arrogance, there was no self-absorption, there was no self-deception, there was no polarization. Because there was no polarization, there was no subjectivity, there was no hypersensitivity, law ruled... And under the objectivity of British law, the law was changed, slavery was outlawed, and there was no civil war, and the race problem was limited and contained, and did not become a major factor in British history as it has in American history. Now, that's just a simple example of how when you introduce religious concepts of works, into politics, into marriage, into education, whatever it is, arrogance always produces polarization and destroys the system because it's based on subjectivity and hypersensitivity. Now, I don't want anybody to get the idea that that what I'm saying in that is to any way justify what was going on in terms of slavery or any of the other problems that were there. Those were problems. The point is that a right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong. The end never justifies the means. And even if the end is a good end, if the means is influenced by arrogance, and just apply this to anything you do in life, if you are motivated by arrogance, it is going to destroy the fruit, whatever it might be. And we see this played out in the scenes of these legal trials surrounding the arrest of Christ because the men involved were so caught up in arrogance, either the secular arrogance of the Romans and Pontius Pilate or the religious arrogance of the Jewish leaders. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 14 and see how this worked out when Jesus went before Caiaphas the high priest. Mark chapter 14 
beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes gathered together. Now, this tells us that they're pulling together the Sanhedrin. Last time I pointed out that the arrest occurred approximately 2 o'clock in the morning, and we know that because at this time of year, when a, the time in which a cock crows in the morning in Jerusalem, in mid-April, mid to early April, is approximately 3 a.m. So that gives us a clear understanding that Peter's denial takes place about 3 a.m., and so it's still night. And according to the rabbinical law and the law of the land, they could not... Uh, convene a, 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 a court at night to consider a capital case. And this was a capital capital case. So immediately they are in violation of the law by meeting at night. See, arrogance always acts in subjectivity and decides they can use the law and twist the law for their own ends and ignore the law and get all involved in and asking questions like, what is the meaning of is? No, I didn't say that. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. Okay, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes gathered together. Now, there are meeting where? Verse 54, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting at the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now this, we learn from this verse, the second violation of law, and that is that the Sanhedrin was to meet officially in a court capacity in the temple, not in the private residence of the high priest. So they are violating, in violation of law, by where they meet. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. Now, what happens here is that Mark, in his explanation here, moves rather quickly from phase one of, the tri- of this section, which is the trial before Caiaphas, to the second section, which is when they bring the council together. Now, the chief priests, the whole council, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were not finding any. In other words, they were bringing in witnesses, but the witnesses couldn't agree. They could not find any reason to condemn Jesus. Verse 56, For many were giving false testimony against him. No two witnesses could agree. And under the Mosaic Law, which was an excellent system of objective law, any condemnation had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. A person could not condemn himself, much like our Fifth Amendment, uh, where a person could could not um, criminalize himself. And so... They get one witness after another, and they can't give a consistent uh, testimony that agrees in condemning Jesus. Verse 57, And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Verse 60, The high priest stood up, And came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? In other words, we can't get them to agree, so let's see if you can uh, give us some evidence against yourself. And this is also a violation of the Mosaic Law. Verse 61, But he kept silent, as Jesus kept silent, and made no answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He's trying to get him to... um, condemn himself, 
and criminalize himself by this admission. And Jesus responds by saying, I am. He doesn't avoid it. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then verse 63, tearing his clothes, which also was a violation of the, of the Mosaic law. The um, Leviticus 21.10 prohibits the high priest from ever tearing his clothes. This is how pagans exhibited grief. This was not how a Jew was to exhibit grief. So you see that there are all sorts of illegalities taking place at the trial. It's at night. The Sanhedrin's meeting in a wrong place. They're in a hurry. They are bribing witnesses. They are presuming guilt. See, you were supposed to be uh, innocent until proven guilty, but they were presuming his guilt. They had a religious agenda operating on arrogance. To uh, They wanted to get rid of him. So they then, after this trial, where there are several members of the Sanhedrin uh, meeting, they... They then come up with the conclusion that he has blasphemed, and they con- quickly convene the Sanhedrin again a few little while later. This is given in Luke 22:66 to 71, in order to give it the semblance or veneer of legality. The result of all of this is that the Jewish religious law found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. It was not blasphemy because he was God. But they rejected his claim to be God. They rejected his claim to be the unique Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And so, and that he was the Messiah prophesied from the Old Testament. And so, they, having rejected that, they trump up these charges to get him uh, executed. The charge itself is based on a forced admission from the defendant, which is in violation of the law. They tried to accuse him of Sabbath violations, but those were mostly based on miracles he performed on the Sabbath, so that was a dangerous ground. Jesus rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees, and Pharisees, but they couldn't really condemn him on that because this was a major theological conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so that was shaky ground. Furthermore, he had cleansed the temple, and that angered and aggravated Annas and Caiaphas, because that was their little uh, operation to make a lot of uh, a lot of money, and it had made them extremely wealthy. But it was looked on with favor by most of the people and many of the rabbis because it was cleaning up all of the corruption. They uh, tried to charge him with all sorts of evil doctrines and sedition, but this was contradicted by his life. They tried to charge him with heresy, but that could not be supported by the facts. No two witnesses agreed, so they had to try to force him to, to commit some crime, and so they uh, forced him to admit who he was, and by asking him, and he admitted it, and on that basis, they found him blasphemous. What we discover from all of this is that when religion and emotion take over, objectivity is lost, and a legal system collapses. It doesn't matter how good that system is. It doesn't matter what it states in the law codes. It doesn't matter how objective it is. Once religion and emotion enter in and arrogance enters in, that legal system will collapse. And we need to take notice of that. They found him guilty in the religious trials, guilty of blasphemy, but under Roman law, they could not... Um, 
they could not execute him. They had to go to the Roman authority and go to the procurator in order to get permission to have him executed. That is where we find ourselves in John chapter 18. So let's turn back to John 18. The three religious trials are over with. The trial before Pilate, I mean the trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas in Mark, and then the trial before the Sanhedrin given in Luke. And now we come back and they bring him to the Praetorium. John chapter 18, verse 28. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, there's a lot of debate as to exactly where the Praetorium was located. It was probably located in the barracks, the uh, Fortress Antonio, which was set up in Jerusalem in order to maintain order because this was such a uh, seedbed of political and of political strife and rebellion against the empire. If you look roughly at a at an outline of the wall around Jerusalem, it, in this area you would find the temple precinct. And in this corner of the temple precinct, Herod had built this fortress its walls extended far above the surrounding temple precincts so that the Romans could mount a guard that would march around the walls and they could look down from this uh, observation post, they could look down and see everything that was going on in the city below and everything that was going on out in the temple. And if you were a Jew, that what that did was it was a symbol that you were always under observation from the Gentile Roman authorities. Now, Herod named this after his friend, Mark Antony, so it was uh, named after him. It was the Antonio Fortress or the Fortress Antonio Mark Antony Barracks. This is where the cohort was housed that came out to arrest Jesus. And it is here in the fortress that you had the Praetorium, which was the place where the procurator, the governor, ruled. Now, we need to do a little background study to understand the Roman background here. There were three types of Roman provinces. There was a senatorial province, which, is, which operated under the oversight of the Roman Senate. Remember Rome, the symbol for Rome was S-P-Q-R. The S was for the Senate, the Senatus. The P is for the people, the populace. The Q is for the conjunction an, K, and the R for Rome, Romanus. Senatus, populus, K, Romanus. The Senate and the people of Rome. And so you had the senatorial provinces that were, that were, that, uh, were administered directly by the Roman Senate. Then you had imperial provinces which were administered directly by the Roman Empire. Then you had a third class of province, uh, a third class that were, were um, 
third class of province which were based on independent or formed from independent nations and these were ruled by the equites the equites was a specific class of Roman citizen that had been elevated from uh, the uh, common people. They, they were not uh, official aristocracy. See, the senatorial and imperial provinces were all ruled by aristocrats. But if you were not born an aristocrat in Rome, then on the basis of your own merit and achievements, you could be elevated from the masses up into the ranks of the equites, which were, was sort of like the knights of the uh, Roman Empire. So, this third class of province is where we find Judea, and it was ruled by an equites. And we know that from secular history that Pontius Pilate was a member of this class. He was a member of the equites, and so he had been elevated on the basis of his own merit and his own achievements to this class. So this tells us something about Pilate in terms of his own ability. Now, very little, unfortunately, is known about, uh, about Pontius Pilate. There is a legend that he was the bastard son of Tyrus, the king of Mayence, which was a German province. And according to this legend, he was a blonde, blue-eyed German, and he was uh, sent by his father, since he was illegitimate, down to Rome but he was uh, as a hostage, but he was recognized for his abilities. He was freed, and he was sent to school where he advanced, and his abilities were recognized. So he, he was uh, uh, brought into the class of equites, but because of a murder charge in Rome, he was sent out to the provinces. And while he was in the province of Pontus, which was in Asia Minor, he uh, put down a rebellion and was given the title Pontius. So that is where this derives. But that's legend. We really don't know for sure if that took place. Other people have other theories about his name. And All we know about him is that, for, all we know about him for sure is that having, uh, since he was a member of the Equites, he did have and had exhibited enough ability and talent to be elevated into this uh, honorable rank of leaders in the Roman Empire and was appointed as the procurator of, of Judea. Now, one of the things that he did once he came in to Judea he made a, several mistakes which really angered the Jews. First of all, when he entered into Jerusalem the first time, he, he brought in the, the flags that had the portrait of Caesar on them and had this, these standards planted outside the Mark Antony barracks there. And because of that, uh, it angered the Jews to bring an image because Caesar was God. So it had on there Tiberius Deus, which Tiberius is God, and that angered all the Jews to have that in the temple precinct. So they immediately raised uh, Cain about that and had a minor rebellion there and civil disturbance. So he had to have the, the standards taken back to Caesarea. Then at another time, uh, he had uh, uh, there had been a minor re uh, frac uh, 
uh, minor revolt in the city, and he sent the troops in, and all the Jews involved were, were killed. So that, again, angered all the Jews against Pilate. And then the, um, uh, this was the way he handled one of the riots with the mobs. And then a third thing that happened was that um, there was a problem with getting water into uh, Jerusalem, and the old aqueduct system uh, needed to be repaired. So he went into the temple and he took money out of the temple treasury to use to repair the aqueducts in the city. Now, this occurred less than a year before the events here at the end of the Gospel. So, he has angered the Jews, and after this event, they were so angry that they had complained directly to uh, Tiberius, who was the Caesar. They complained directly to Tiberius, and if there was one other complaint, one other major problem, then Pilate was going to lose his job in disgrace. So he is between a rock and a hard place. He's obviously exhibited objectivity and good leadership in the past, but now he is acting like any politician. He is going to succumb to the pressure of the mob in order to preserve his own career. He is a picture of political expediency here. So once again, we see the impact that emotion and subjectivity enters in to the legal system and you have the destruction of law and you have the promotion of injustice. So that's the background on, on Pilate. They, they came to the praetorium in order that they, and they, they, they did not go in. The Jews would not go in, so they stayed outside. Now, this shows that, that Pilate is already very sensitive to the Jews, and he wants to show them how, how sensitive he is and, and that he really cares about them, and, and he's going to really listen to all of their problems, so he doesn't want to anger them at all. So he acts like their little errand boy, and he gets up and he goes outside to them. Rather than operating from a position of authority and courage and saying, well, if you really have a complaint against this man, you will either dismiss the charges now if you won't come in, or you can just wait and come back after the feast days are over with, and you can come in and we'll do it according to law. But instead of holding his ground, he decided just to, uh, to cave in to their pressure and so we see already that the Jews are in control of the situation, not Pilate. Verse 29, Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, and here we have the adjective kakos plus, or, uh, plus poieo, which just means someone who does evil. They're, they're, this is a very broad general term uh, for a lawbreaker we would not have delivered him up to you. So they're not accusing him of anything uh, specific at this point, simply that he is a malefactor, he is a criminal, he has violated their law, and they're saying we have justification to bring him before you in order for you to uh, bring a uh, capital uh, punishment against him. Verse 31, Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. Why should you bring him, to, bring him to me? This is a religious issue. This is just something that is before you, that is part of your culture. You handle it. See, under the Roman system, when, a Roman, when the Romans took over a province, they left their law in place. They recognized something called the Ius, or Ius, I-U-S, 
Gentium, which is the law of the nations. And this was natural law that was common to almost every nation or every country. And they left that in place. It was only on the basis of certain extreme situations that Roman law would override local laws and customs. And this one of those cases involved uh, any situation involving capital punishment. So if it was going to cause the loss of someone's life, then they would have to go to Rome and, and Rome would have to uh, legislate that. Now, Jesus is in a situation here where he's a non-Roman citizen, so Pilate can do whatever he wants to. All of Pilate's actions here are legal under the framework of Roman law. They may not be moral, they, he, he, they may not be the most ethical uh, approach, but as far as the Roman law was concerned which gave him tremendous latitude in dealing with a non-Roman citizen. He did not do anything that was a violation of Roman law by the letter of the law. But at this point, he does not think that there is any issue before Roman law, so he just says, take him yourself. And the Jews say, no, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy from various passages like uh, John 3.14, Matthew 20.19, uh, John 8.28, where Jesus had prophesied the fact that he was going to die. In fact, in John 12.32, Jesus had prophesied that he was about to die and go to the cross to his disciples. He said, we're going to go into Jerusalem where they're going to uh, crucify me. And then you have, you know, th- he told them that on the way to the upper room. And then remember in the upper room, he said, I'm going to leave you. And they went, what do you mean you're going to leave us? Well, he just... A few minutes before, Jesus had told him that he was getting ready to be crucified. So once again, we were reminded of the, the uh, somewhat spiritual density of the disciples. But here we read that the word of Jesus, this is the uh, logos of Jesus, this is his prophecy, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So P- uh, Pilate is left sort of between a rock and a hard place here. He's feeling the pressure from the Jews and his career is at stake. So he's got to give this a little more attention than he ought to. And instead of just dismissing them, he goes back in to interview Jesus in verse 33. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, saying, uh, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? In other words, did you come up with this on your own? Or is this a charge that the Jews are bringing against me? You see, one of the great law, one of the uh, laws in Rome was that if you claim to be a king in competition with Caesar, then that was an act of treason. And so what Jesus is asking for by this question is a point of clarification. Are you charging me with a violation of the Roman law that I'm elevating myself to king in competition with Caesar? Pilate's answer is, well, I'm not a Jew, am I? In fact, this is, he's saying this isn't a national issue. I don't understand all of your religious systems. Uh, your own nation, the chief priests, delivered you up to me. And I'm just trying to find out what you've done. I need a little further clarification and to see if you're really guilty of anything. And Jesus answered, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Now, obviously, Peter had tried to do that 
because uh, when he cut off the ear of the temple servant, but he was immediately reprimanded and corrected. Jesus is pointing out that his kingdom is not of this world and that it is in a different realm, but that he had come that I might, uh, he says, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So nobody's out there fighting. And so Pilate begins to question him about his claim to be a king. Now, what exactly do you mean? He says, so you are a king, Jesus said, you say correctly, that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Every, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And I want to stop there because Pilate's response is classic. He asks the question, what is truth? And this is the question that almost every unbeliever asks. You can hear him saying it in a very sarcastic manner. What do you mean truth? There is no absolute. And in order to understand the issues there, we need to take a little time, which we don't have this morning. So we will close at that point. Jesus recognizes his mission, that he is the ki- born a king as the son of David, and it is his, he has offered himself as Messiah, and a Messiah had to be God. We've seen that in our study of Old Testament passages, that the Messiah was going to be undiminished deity, and for that the Jews have brought a charge of blasphemy, and Pilate is now in a position of trying to decide how he is going to handle this particular charge and whether or not he can find any legitimate reason to let Jesus go. Pilate does try, I think, every way he can, but ultimately he is going to succumb to the pressure of the Jews and political expediency, and that is why Jesus is crucified. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to look at how you worked behind the scenes in human history, orchestrating all of the events in both the religious civil trials of the Jews and the political criminal trials of the Romans to bring about the collapse of these great human systems demonstrating that man cannot solve his own problems, that even in the midst of man's collapse, you were working to bring absolute good out of man's failure. And from this, we see Jesus Christ going to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without uh, certainty of salvation, that you would make that clear to them uh, this morning. That Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that there is no hope, no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Father, the Scriptures make it clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to be challenged by the things that we have learned, that we might greater appreciate all that you have done in our salvation, and this might motivate us to spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.